This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 45, May 26, 1983. Since we were last together, I have been here and there across the country and abroad. I was in Australia for a few days to speak to a group of ministers who are facing state controls of their Christian schools. Australian law requires the compulsory unionization of all teachers. It also requires the registration of all uh, Christian and non-Christian schools. I was there with William Bentley Ball, the attorney, and our purpose was briefly this. I was there to discuss the theology of resistance, why it is religiously necessary for the church and Christian school to be free. And Mr. Ball was there to tell them how to resist. The meetings were very well received. We had a good reception with the members of Parliament when we met at the lunchroom of the New South Wales Parliament. Of course, the members who attended were those who were congenial to our perspective. The chairman, Mr. Cameron, a member of Parliament, surprisingly, was a man who had read my Institutes of Biblical Law as well as Law and Liberty and was very uh, favorable to both books, so that made the meeting all the more congenial. One of the men I met at a dinner meeting and sat next to, in fact, is a man whose work it is to sit down and assist a number of the native leaders of New Guinea. The British Empire is requiring that New Guinea accept a constitution and become independent. The constitution which I saw is something that runs a few hundred pages and is hardly a constitution and more like a legal code. Very abstract, very humanistic and rational. And this for a country where, as this man told me, cannibalism is still a practice. This is a good example of the unrealism of so many of our... um, top diplomats the world over. One of the things that interested me was this. Australia is a very congenial place. I was favorably impressed with everything I saw and the people I saw. Very much impressed. There's no question that there is a very cordial relationship between Australia and the United States as far as the people are concerned. Thus, I saw only good when I was there. But I was interested in this. Every state except Queensland is socialist, as well as the federal government of Australia. This despite the fact that the people give you a very favorable impression. Of course, I saw, by and large, Christian and conservative people. But all the same, it was easy to see why the country is moving emphatically to the left. Australia has a law making mandatory the uh, vote of every person of age. 
This means that everybody has to vote or face a fine. Well, if you had that kind of law in the United States, we would be a socialist country overnight because all the non-voters would have one objective in voting since they have to vote, and that would be to feather their own nest. The morning I left Australia, the finance minister announced uh, a new budget which, by his own statement, was going to take from the rich and the middle classes that give to the poor. It interested me that Queensland, the only state with a conservative government, a free enterprise-oriented government, is also the one where apparently evangelical Christianity is stronger. Another thing that interested me greatly was this, when in the course of conversation I was asked about the situation in the United States generally, and I commented on the growing concern of many people with the lawlessness. The Australians matched me with everything I had to say with um, comments about the lawlessness in Australia. They commented on the fact that many of the big cities have areas where it is unsafe to walk at any time. The police are dropping from any consideration many minor crimes because they have too much crime to be bothered with anything except the more serious offenses. Now, I submit this is a very important fact because Australia is an all-white country. The Aborigines there are a very small minority. Thus, the problem in Australia cannot be blamed on racial minorities. In Australia, as in the United States, the problem is sin. And when you have a sinful element in your population, you're going to have a high crime rate. And that's it. Well, I won't comment on some of the other trips because I could spend all hour talking about my travels of late sometimes, in fact, from the beginning of this year, more than a few times, I've only been home overnight long enough to get a change of clothing and take off again. Well, one or two times back, I discussed my purchase of Derek Freeman's Margaret Mead and Samoa. On the trip to Australia, I read that book. It's a very, very important book, and I'm not going to go into the contents. Suffice it to say that what M Margaret Mead did was to indulge in fraud. She went there as a pupil of Franz Boas. Franz Boas was a prominent anthropologist, chairman of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Columbia. That department, by the way, was the first such department to be formed in any American university. Uh, Franz Boas was born in Germany. His family was a family of political activists. His mother had been prominent member of a number of European revolutionary movements. 
Boaz thus had leftward leanings. His anthropology department did much to further this kind of thing in the United States. We have to recognize that there was at Columbia quite a combination of John Dewey and Franz Boaz, each in their own field, working towards a common goal. Now I'm going to back up and deal with this matter from a rather broad perspective. The background of Margaret Mead and Franz Boaz and others is Darwin. Darwin and the doctrine of evolution. The theory of evolution, of course, was, as Darwin wrote it, a racist doctrine. Otto Scott has pointed out in one of the Chalcedon reports this fact, and he has often commented about it. If you look at the original title of Darwin's book, the subtitle clearly indicates his racist orientation. A relative of Darwin, Galton, developed these racist implications. He held that heredity is the determining factor in the character and makeup of a person, his abilities. As a result of Galton's work, the so-called science of eugenics was developed. As a result, a whole generation or two or more grew up under something which condemned most people in terms of a fallacious and racist theory to a position of inferiority. Now, this doctrine of eugenics and of uh, determination of evolution by heredity was destroyed to a great degree by Hitler's unpopularity. In this country, by the way, two of the famous names in the eugenics school were Lothrop Stoddard and Madison Grant. At any rate, <clears throat> Uh, the use by Hitler of this strand of Darwinian thinking led to the discrediting of this kind of evolutionary doctrine. At the same time, beginning in the 20s, you had Franz Boas insisting it is not eugenics, it is not heredity, it is environment. If we study the environment we will find that environment determines people so that culture creates a man. And therefore, if we create the right kind of environment, we will create a new man in a new culture. Well, this was Franz Boas's thesis. Margaret Mead was one of his students. She gained a research grant to go to Samoa. She went there. She did not live with the natives. She did very real study. She never really got to know the Samoans, had a very poor knowledge of the language. She falsified the data, and she came back and portrayed a picture of a sexual paradise where people grew up without inhibitions, had no problems, simply because there were no neuroses created by repressive religious ideas.
The fact is, however, Samoa was and is an area of very strong Protestant Christianity. The natives are very devout, and Margaret Mead's picture was mythical. It had no relationship to the real Samoa. As a result, her book was a fraud. However, the American public seized it with joy. The scientific community hailed it as a work of very meticulous and remarkable research. Out of it was born the doctrine of environmentalism. It backed up Dewey's educational theories. It led to the sexual revolution because the thesis was that if you remove all restrictions, you allow free sexuality, you will create a happy, neurosis-free person, someone who can enjoy life and realize themselves as no one else. One was that of the genetic hereditarian, which was exploded. Fraud was revealed in connection with it. And the other, the cultural. And now that is exploded. It is revealed to be fraudulent. Of course, we can add to that that uh, at the same time we have seen fraud as with Piltdown Man, and there's reason to believe that was not alone with regard to the very evidences so-called for evolution. Thus, this creates a bind. We have both prongs of the theory of evolution and how it is affected and how it will continue to work shown to be fraudulent. What's the next step? What is the answer? Freeman is an evolutionist. He hopes that somehow by taking a little bit of heredity and a little bit of uh, environmentalism, something can be done. However, that's a futile uh, comment. comes on the last page of his book. Freeman is aware of the devastation he has wrought to the whole doctrine and therefore is trying to throw out some kind of hope of salvage. The real effort, however, is in another direction. And I think we can see that direction in a book by Nicholas Wade, The Ultimate Experiment, Man-Made Evolution published in 1977 and probably now out of print. Let me say that Margaret Mead and Samoa, written by Derek Freeman, is available, uh, was published by Harvard, and is available from a Heritage uh, Bookstore or Bookshop, 2427-B, as in boy, Marconi, M-A-R-C-O-N-I Avenue, Sacramento, California, 95821. Their telephone is 916-487-8944. Now, let's go to this third alternative, which is supposed to salvage the doctrine of evolution for us. The book is rightly called The Ultimate Experiment, Man-Made Evolution. It deals with DNA. 
how man is going to engineer his future and become his own creator. At the very beginning, Wade says, and I quote, there are occasional suggestions made on scientific or moral grounds that the key, that is, genetic key, DNA, should be thrown away. Such abnegation of intellectual curiosity is not in man's nature. And in any case, the question is moot. The door to the treasure house is already ajar. And the only question remaining is what use will be made of the riches within, unquote. Let me add before we go on, I do believe that in the area of DNA research we are going to find in the near future, or perhaps not in the too near future, that as much fraud has taken place in this area as with uh, Galton and Bert and uh, Franz Boas and Margaret Mead. At any rate, Wade goes on to say, the Rubicon that everyone had supposed to be the natural stopping point, the inviolability of the human genetic constitution, is to be crossed. The way would then be opened for Homo sapiens to bring to birth his finest creation, Homo sapientissimus. Well, he says that uh, the goal is to change humanity and to change nature. He is very dedicated to this goal. And the issue, as he sees it, is whether men are going to play God or not. In fact, he says in one uh, conference on the subject during the discussion, one of the men likened their arrival to waiting for the Messiah. They were awaiting the crippled bacteria which supposedly would enable them to make some dramatic experiments. Now, this theory gives us a revival of the eugenics in a new form. Let me quote again from Wade on page 150. One of the social problems that lies ahead is that of genetic engineering. Racist beliefs and the Nazi attempts to create a master race have given eugenics an odious reputation. Yet if the historical precedents are laid aside, the concept may appear to have certain merits. Why leave man's inheritance to be shaped by the blind forces of genetic drift or the brute pressures of natural selection to the small extent that it may be operative on today's societies? In Brave New World, Aldo Huxley harped on the subbreeds of men designed to remain content in menial service to the higher castes. But the only humane justification of genetic engineering would be to improve upon man's inheritance, not to debase it. The concept of progress is a deeply rooted value of industrial societies. When a means is found to design indubitable improvements in the intellectual or emotional architecture of the human mind, would it be true to that value to ignore the opportunity of improving a scarcely perfect species? The concept of human genetic engineering 
is bound to be resisted on religious and other grounds. Yet what is inherently wrong with creating a group of genetically improved individuals? The idea may not be entirely democratic in inspiration, but human societies are thoroughly accustomed to elites and ruling classes whose claim to superiority is based on, of all things, heredity." Unquote. Thus, the man's thinking is clearly elitist. The elite he has in mind is the scientific elite, and we are to trust them. Well, as Christians, that's one thing we cannot do with anyone. We can't even trust ourselves. Man is a sinner. And to trust man is to ask for trouble and is to condemn society to the kind of disaster we have precisely now. The concluding paragraph in Wade's book is very interesting. I quote, The ability to manipulate the stuff of life is the ultimate technology. Other technologies are merely extensions of man's hands or mind or senses, serving to amplify or project the capabilities of the user. The further improvement and refinement of these technologies will doubtless continue to be a preoccupation for long into the future, but the impending ability to turn the tools inward for the reshaping of man himself would be an event quite out of the ordinary march of technological progress. Hitherto evolution has seemed an inexorable and irreversible process as time or entropy. Now at least there lies almost within man's grasp a tool for manipulating the force that shaped him, for controlling his own creator." Unquote. Well, with that kind of pride, these people are hardly the kind to be trusted. And anyone who buys their argument is very, very foolish indeed. Now to another subject, a very interesting book is John J. Tierney, Jr., T-I-E-R-N-E-Y, Somozas and Sandinistas the U.S. and Nicaragua and the 20th century. This was published jointly by the Council for Inter-American Security and the Council for Inter-American Security Educational Institute, published in 1982 uh, at 729-8th Street, Washington, D.C., 20003 for five dollars. It's a little paperback of a little less than a hundred pages, but it is a remarkably astute work. If you want to know something about America's Central American diplomacy, the pitfalls and errors that have been perpetrated, and our relationship to Nicaragua in particular, this is the book to read. It explodes, by the way, the myth that uh, Somoza was a U.S. puppet. It also deals with the fact that Somoza was very much an imitator in his early years of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It deals with the errors in our foreign policy 
what has happened in Nicaragua right up to the present and with the Sandinistas and the original of that group, Sandino. It's a no-holds-barred account, and I strongly recommend it. Then I dealt with, some time ago, the film Gandhi. Grenier's review of uh, the Gandhi film has been reproduced with an introduction by Frankie Schaefer as well as another uh, introduction by Richard Grenier. The title is The Gandhi Nobody Knows by Richard Grenier, G-R-E-N-I-E-R. The book was published by Thomas Nelson, Nashville and New York, in 1983 for $3.95. In his introduction to this printing, Grenier calls attention to some of the insanities of our current policies. He says, as World War II drew to a close, and it was not yet apparent to Washington, the territories being overrun by the Red Army were destined for decades, if not generations, of Soviet rule. A delegation of scholars of communism in the Soviet Union conferred with President Harry Truman. The president told them, to their horror, that he felt the greatest threat to freedom in the world of that time was the British Empire. Unquote. Now that's the kind of insanity that has marked us for a good many years, for half a century at least. He also comments, Grenier does, that uh, some people are furious with him because of the home truths he told about Gandhi. Somehow or other, the imaginary Gandhi should be allowed to prevail over the historical Gandhi. Gandhi's preoccupation with enemas and excrement and the Hindu deification of uh, filth uh, other critics said should never have been referred to. But as Grenier comments, but I did not invent Gandhi's preoccupation with enemas and excrement, about which he talked and wrote endlessly. I merrily recorded it, since it occupied such a large part of his thinking and was strictly germane to my comments on humanism. It is not my fault if devout Hindus in pursuit of sanctity daily drink a glass of their own urine. It is not my fault if Hindus eat cow dung on special occasions. It is not my fault if Hindus are among the most bestially violent people on the face of the globe. If you do not know these things about Hindus and about Gandhi, you do not really know much about India. You have been getting your information from pacifists and Gandhi groupies, who have been keeping you in a state of retarded innocence. Unquote. Well, there's more like this, but uh, we do have that insane disposition today. Don't bother me with disagreeable facts. If I have a dream image of someone, don't shake my confidence in him. Well, 
now on to some other matters. The press not too long ago carried the story of the National Commission on Excellence in Education report. And that report is very interesting. First of all, the press did not read the report very carefully. What they did cite was the data provided with regard to the disaster that public education has become. The fact that it has to be graded an F for its performance. However, the whole purpose of this report was a whitewash. None of the data is new. In fact, the data is toned down. The statistics are sometimes cut. And everything is done to lessen the impact of the disaster that public education has become. However, since they did list all the uh, sad results of contemporary education, and the press saw these, it picked on these and dealt with them quite uh, sensationally. But the point of this entire report was to ask for more money as the solution. In that respect, it did backfire as far as the public is concerned. However, state legislatures are beginning to vote more money. This will change nothing. At the same time, in the Journal of the Institute for Socioeconomic Studies, for spring 1983, volume 8, number 1, we have the statement that, and I'm, I quote, The NEA wants ample grants of money from local, state, and federal governments, but is not willing to give assurances of increased educational productivity or accountability in return. It is clearly amenable to politicizing the schools in line with new left social doctrine, but is insensible to the school's declining credibility when citizens and parents disagree with such views. In contrast, the AFT, NEA's dominant out official outlook seems neutral to intellect, hostile to absolute standards of achievement and character, and apathetic to virtues such as prudence, industry, and civic pride, unquote. Well, now on to something else. A very interesting book published in uh, 1977 and still available from the University of Texas Press is entitled Salvation in New England, Selections from the Sermons of the First Preachers, edited by Phyllis M. Jones and Nicholas R. Jones. This is a very fine uh, collection, and that is if you enjoy reading sermons. <laughs> These are uh, rather solid and meaty sermons, but uh, the preface, too, is excellent, although very brief. And then the introduction also is excellent. The point made in the uh, introductory material is that the sermon has had a profound influence in America. Indeed, there is no understanding that uh, 
of this country apart from sermons. Today, as in the past, there are more people in church on any given Sunday than have ever voted in any national election. A sad fact is that every Marxist leader knows this fact. This is why the church is the most infiltrated single institution in the United States. It is important to infiltrate the church if you're going to take over this country, if you're going to influence this country, because the church through the pulpit educates this country. This tells you why the country is in such a bad shape, because the pulpit is not doing its job or is doing the wrong job. The great love of preaching in early America was such that very early civil authorities had to restrict midweek preaching to two days so that the business of the week would not be disrupted. People were so excited and happy with the opportunity of hearing the Word of God and learning it better and being taught that they were ready to go to church day after day to be instructed. And so in New England, they restricted midweek meetings to two days. I believe that the future of this country depends on a revival of the relevance of the pulpit in terms of a biblical faith. I submit also that Chalcedon is doing a very great work in that our writings are affecting the pulpit and its preaching. Our terminology and our language is being echoed now in pulpits of every kind of church all over the country. Catholics and Protestants alike are picking it up and using it. I submit that we must step up the ability of any and every group, and of course with me primarily, my concern is Chalcedon, to educate the clergy so that we can begin to turn this country around. Ideas do have consequences, and the pulpit is critical in the shaping of ideas in this country. The neglect of the pulpit led to its capture to a great extent by the opposition. When I was in seminary, it was very, very obvious the extent to which the Marxists controlled the churches. The Marxist students on graduation shot up to the top in their respective denominations and occupied key positions very quickly, irrespective of ability. I could say more on that, but I won't now. Now on to some other things. Uh, Dorothy accompanied me on a trip this past weekend, and uh, it was a delight because we hadn't been together much of late. <laughs> One evening we were uh, listening to the television news quite late, and uh, we had gotten into the hotel room, oh, about 11, 
and there was a commercial advertising some new feminine device or other for feminine hygiene. And Dorothy turned to me and asked, what are, is that that they're advertising? <laughs> so I would know the answer. <laughs> it amazes me. And I've had other men report the same thing. Women somehow expect their husbands to have the answer to everything. And other times seem to act as though they don't have the answer to anything. <laughs> we also saw, while we were thumbing through an airline magazine, an advertisement which showed uh, a groom carrying his bride across the threshold. I turned to Dorothy and I said, Have you ever known anyone who did that? And she said, no. And I said, well, you know, it's often pictured, it's often discussed. I think I've seen it on films a time or two in movies. I've never known anyone who did anything like that. I did hear one man once who did it and wound up in the hospital that very night. His wife was a little too much for his uh, back, so <laughs> he had a rather miserable uh, honeymoon. Well, now on to something else. A number of you expressed your appreciation of the baseball story, so I think I'm going to give you a few more. There's one that I like, and it uh, concerns Yogi Berra, one of the great uh, Yankee ball players. And th these stories are also from John Thorne, A Century of Baseball Lore, published by Galahad Books, New York City. Uh, it was published in 1980 and has been reprinted a number of times. Well, back to Yogi Berra. In his early big league days, pitchers could play on one batting weakness of Yogi Berra. It was a cinch to make the Yankee catcher bite on the first pitch. Once with Berra about to take his turn at bat, Yankee manager Bucky Harris drew him aside and cautioned, Now look, Yogi, don't always take your cut at the first one. Wait for a good ball and think before you swing. The idea is to think. Now get in there and do what I tell you. Yogi picked up his bat, pulled down his cap, and took his place in the batter's box. He didn't bite at the first one. The umpire called it a strike. The second one split the plate. Yogi never moved. The third pitch, too, was a sweet one. But Berra just watched it pass by. Barra dragged his bat back to the dugout and dropped it on the pile. He walked over to Harris. It's your fault, he said bitterly. What do you expect? How can a guy think and hit at the ball at the same time? Well, there are a number of Yogi Berra stories in this book, but uh, maybe one more. In St. Louis, before a game with the cards, Met manager Yogi Berra was interviewed on the air by veteran announcer Jack Buck. At the conclusion of the program, Buck handed Yogi a check made out payable to Berra. 
Yogi thanked Jack, glanced at the check, and then looked up forlornly. Jack, he said disappointedly, you know me all these years and you still don't know how to spell my name. <laughs> well, one of my favorites, of course, is Leroy Satchel Page. Let me read this about him. Because of the major league's color barrier, not broken until 1947, Satchel Page became the oldest rookie in baseball history. When he first took the mound for the Indians on July 9, 1948, Satch was listed at 42 years old, but may well have been closer to 50. He had been a professional hurler for more than 25 years and had chalked up more than 2,000 victories. White ball players had known about Satch for years. Many major league stars had faced Page in barnstorming games, and few had fared well. In one game, Page fanned Rogers Hornby five times. In other games, he put down Jimmy Fox on strikes three times, and Charlie Garinger the same number of times. In 1934, after Dizzy Dean concluded his 30-win season by adding two more on the World season, Series, Satch took him on in a 13-inning duel, page one, one to nothing. Even as an over-the-hill rookie in 1948, old Satch showed white America something of his former greatness. On his first trip to the mound as a Cleveland starter, he threw a three-hit shutout. Page pitched 178 games in the big leagues before retiring after the 1953 season but he kept on pitching, often in the old backwater haunts where he'd played at his peak. Then in 1965, as a publicity gimmick, the Kansas City A's signed Satch to a player's contract. Not long thereafter, the ancient page, admittedly 59 and perhaps 70, towed the rubber as the starting pitcher against the Boston Red Sox. In three innings, he allowed no runs, and only one hit. In 1971, Satchel Page was at last accorded recognition for his accomplishments, taking his rightful place alongside Johnson, Young, and Mathewson in baseball's Hall of Fame. Now to something in a lighter vein also, <laughs> from Thorne's book. After a morning workout, giant slugger Johnny Mize came into the clubhouse, dripping with perspiration. He flung off his sweatshirt and headed for the showers. While Mize was washing off, trainer Frank Bowman took Mize's sweatshirt and soaked it with alcohol. When Mize came back to his locker, Bowman asked him how he was feeling. Fine, Mize said. Pushed from the workout, but otherwise just fine. Well, said Bowman, you'd better stay away from the hard stuff, John. That's what really takes it out of a player. What are you talking about, Frank? I was in before curfew last night, and all I had was a couple of beers. Don't try to kid me, John, the trainer said as he dropped a match onto the sweatshirt and set it aflame. That's alcohol you sweated out. The embarrassed mice rushed to quench the fire. Please, Doc, mice implored. Don't say anything about this to anyone. 
Well, one more, perhaps. And this about another black player. When Monty Irvin came to the major leagues as a 30-year-old rookie with the New York Giants, he was, by his own admission, way past his peak. He had been compelled to waste 11 years in the Negro Leagues, where one year he had batted 422 and an another hit 41 home runs. Monty had only eight years left for the Giants and one final season for the Cubs. Nevertheless, when Irvin got his chance to showcase his talents before all of America, he rose to the occasion. In the first game of the 1951 World Series against the Yanks, he hit three singles and a triple to lead his Giants to victory. In the second game, he got four more hits, a double and three singles. Though his team went on to lose the series in six games, Monty stroked 11 hits and 24 times at bat for an average of 458. In 1973, in recognition of his accomplishments in both the Negro Leagues and the National League, Irvin was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Well, there's a lot more that I'd like to go into, and I don't know where to start. Uh, one of the books that I read, I guess I'll just deal with briefly, it is... Uh, an historical study, King Edward III, by Michael Pack, edited after Michael Pack's death by L.C.B. Seaman. Pack's name is spelled P-A-C-K-E. This was published by Rutledge and Keegan Paul of England and also of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. It's an excellent history of King Edward III, one of the important kings of England. It gives a vivid glimpse into the era, into the beginnings of the Hundred Year War, and to some of the problems and conflicts of the era. By the way, uh, Edward III was the father of the famous Black Prince who died before he took the throne. Edward, whose dates were 1312 to 1377, was king for 50 years, and as a result, his influence was very powerful in the future of England. When uh, we come to the period in which he took the throne, we find that anarchy was quite prevalent. And yet we have to say that at the time, even royal rule was sometimes no better. For example, to give you an idea of the kind of thing that... Uh, Edward III did. When he began his war for the control of Spain and for the crown of Spain, Edward made every effort to draw King Philip of France into the conflict. Philip was trying to avoid it because, after all, Edward was on uh, 
French soil. He was far from his supply lines. And therefore, delaying tactics aided France. On the other hand, what uh, Edward did was to perpetrate as much criminal violence as possible to force Philip to act. Let me just uh, give an example. Planning to draw Philip after him, Edward feigned to turn away and bore eastward into the salient of Theoroc. Deliberately provocative, his men foraged and plundered, plundered, laying waste French villages. Their cruel deeds were not at all of the sort that Froissart proclaimed would encourage all valorous hearts and show them honorable examples. At Orini, a whole community of nuns was raped and the convent burned. At Hendricourt, the country people and an abbey full of monks, determined to defend themselves, built a barrier against Sir Henry of Flanders and his troop. Their burly abbot, seeing Sir Henry flourishing his sword incautiously too near, reached through the palings, grabbed the blade, and pinned the knight helplessly between the woodwork and the press of friends who tried to drag him clear. After a lengthy tussle, the abbot wrested Sir Henry's sword from him and for years afterwards the monks displayed it proudly to visitors who passed by. Edward's tactics proved successful. Philip, no longer able to restrain the mounting anger in his ranks caused by the Allied atrocities, advanced in pursuit from Peron to San Quentin, whence, in response to a challenge, he replied to Edward's joy that if he would choose out a place not fortified with trees, ditches, or bogs, the king of France without fail would afford him battle. Edward richly rewarded the herald of such welcome news with furred gowns and other gifts, unquote. And there they began the battle which was resumed again and again for the next hundred years. I cite that example because too often our colleges and universities give us a very, very falsified picture of the medieval era. We forget that when the church moved into Europe, into the areas outside of the Roman Empire, it was moving into barbarian country. It was moving among people who performed human sacrifices. Moreover, even within the areas of the Roman Empire, these people had moved in and settled so that Gaul, modern France, was barbarian country also. Thus the church had to deal with people of a savage, primitive character, people who loved violence, delighted in it, and very often regarded a man highly who was given to bloody ways. It was not an easy struggle. As a result, the idea that uh, all was sweetness and light in the Middle Ages is nonsense. It was a bitter battle. The church gained victory slowly, but then the state, as the church began to gain power, turned on the church and worked to corrupt it systematically to corrupt it. 
There's no question that prior to the Reformation, the church had become very corrupt. But we must realize that much of that corruption, apart from the natural propensity of all men to sin, was deliberately created by the Holy Roman Empire and the various monarchs. They forced prelates on the church who were evil men, men with criminal dispositions, men who became prelates with one idea to exploit the church. As a result, we cannot see the later medieval church apart from the fact that two tremendous forces worked to undermine the church. One was the Black Death, the plague. So many clergymen died that ignorant men took over the church and that contributed to its decline. But apart from that, the monarchs working behind the scenes were doing everything to subvert the church. They wanted the control of the church and they sought the control from without and from within. Another important fact for us to remember, and because the history books are written by humanistic historians who believe in the state, not in Jesus Christ, they give us a dishonest picture here. The Inquisition was essentially a state tool. In Spain it was totally so. In fact, it was forbidden to any Catholic in Spain to appeal against the Inquisition to the Pope. In other countries, the Church had some participation and some popes had some participation. But it was essentially a statist instrument, and the inquisitors were encouraged by the state even though they were technically a part of the church. The church's participation was bought because it was given a share of the take, a tithe of the take. Anyone who suffered from the inquisition had all his, and was condemned, had all his property confiscated. So it was a good racket. The state took it. The state profited by it. Many of the monarchs who pushed the Inquisition, beginning with a man who was responsible for starting it, were not Christian. Frederick II, the Hohenstaufen, Holy Roman Emperor, who started the Inquisition, was almost certainly a secret Muslim. He had his own harem, by the way. Now these are the men who promoted it, and their reason was uniformity in the state. They wanted everyone to have the same faith, and that for them would have to be the Catholic faith, since that was the majority faith, and they felt they could control the Catholic faith. Now we have the same thing, the demand for uniformity on the part of the state, and we have a new inquisition. The Supreme Court is an instrument of that inquisition, and the various courts are also. Their whole purpose is one thing, uniformity, to have everything controlled by the state. 
Now, as then, you have many churches, Catholic and Protestant, who are cooperating with the new Inquisition. This does not mean that we should condemn the church, but condemn those in the church who are cooperating and work to free the church from the new Inquisition and to establish the sovereignty of Christ as king over his church. Well, it has been good to be with you again, and I'm looking forward to our next time. I have a couple of exciting books I want to share with you. So until then, God bless you, and thank you for listening in, and don't try carrying your wife over the threshold. Take care of yourself.